Two sermon texts for you this morning, one from Genesis 50 and the other from Acts 15. I want to talk today about discerning God's will. The first text comes from Genesis 50. It is about Joseph. If you remember the story, he had this fancy coat, some jealous brothers, and was sold into slavery. But through being sold into slavery and a number of incidences, he ends up being uh, a key figure in Egypt in saving up for uh, uh, a famine that's coming. And he ends up really through that experience saving his family who, who was not doing well. This comes at the end of that story, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He and his brothers came and fell before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said, Do not fear for I, for, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about so that many people should be kept alive, so they are today. So do not, do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly. And our text from Acts chapter 15, this is called the Jerusalem Council. The, the church has not just stayed with the Jews, but has moved now to the Gentiles. And there's a lot of debate going on in Acts, and, and Paul is right in the middle of this as a missionary and key church planter, to say, well, do these people who are Gentiles have to become Jews to be part of this faith? And after much wrestling, the, the leadership says, no, they don't. And, and this is how they respond. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, I'm in verse 22, with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leading them among the brothers with the following letter. And here's the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have, sent therefore, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you sustain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Today I want to talk about decision making. All the time we are making decisions. Some of them little, where to eat, what to eat, who to talk to, what route to take to get somewhere, where we should go on vacation. But sometimes we make big decisions. 
Like, where am I going to work? What am I going to do? Who am I going to date or who am I going to marry? Do I want children? How am I going to respond to this crisis or this person at work? How am I going to deal when my kids or my grandkids get into trouble? So we make these decisions, these turns, these, these movements all the time in our lives. And really, if you think about it, our lives become the culminations of the decisions that we make. Yes, some things happen to us in life, but we also choose how we can respond to them. How do you make decisions? Big ones or little ones? What is the process that you use to make decisions? Normally, we decide. We, as people, like to analyze, to think things through. Some of us make decisions more kind of on feeling, kind of, this is my gut. Other people seek advice. You probably know people in your life that seek way too much advice, right? People that make decisions almost exclusively based on what everybody around them says. Either way, we're typically doing what's called analysis. Analysis comes from a Greek word that means to break up and uh, loosen and then sort of look through. So analysis is making decisions by weighing the things. It's, it's a term used very early on in math that you sort of calculate. Well, is it this decision or this decision? If you're like many people, you'll make lists of pros and cons, or at least you'll do it in your head about one decision or another decision. You know, interestingly enough, biblically, in the whole Bible, I can't find a lot of decision-making made anything like what we'd make typically. I see very little analysis. I see very few people doing stuff based on feeling. I, I see very few examples of people going to others for advice and following that advice exactly. Oh, there are some examples, like Pharaoh... Nebuchadnezzar, Herod. Normally the bad guys are the ones that do the analysis. It's God's people that do something different. They do what we would call discernment. Discernment is not actually a biblical word. It's a word that comes around later. It's really from a Latin word meaning to separate. Dis meaning to uh, pull apart or asunder. And the verb sirne meaning to perceive, to see. It's the idea of sort of seeing through, shifting through. When we think of analysis, we might think of that pro and con sort of thing, like a spreadsheet of figuring out to make decisions. But discernment is much more like mining for gold. If you've ever seen that process in a traditional way, you, you put all kinds of rocks into, into a pan and you, and you sort of shake it. You twirl it around. And some of the stuff would, would sift out and some of the larger stuff would move to the side and eventually you could see if you had gold or not. The idea is basically that God has a plan and a purpose for your life. This is all over the scriptures, but it's probably most clear in Jeremiah 29, 11. Um, this is a great verse and worth your consideration. God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Amazing words in Jeremiah from God, especially when you consider that it's right in the middle of a passage where, where Jeremiah is, is speaking God's words to the people that they're going to be carried off into slavery and exile. 
I know the plans I have for you, but some of those plans involve you going to slavery. That's the context. Our God is personal. He cares about us, our own individual life. He has plans and purposes for you. God has uniquely wired and gifted you, given you experiences for things that he wants you to accomplish. Amazingly, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit even comes into your life so that the Holy Spirit can guide you from within. God can speak through you and to you, and you don't have to go to a priest or a pastor to get that. Now, the challenge is that God's plans are not our plans. Isaiah 55 says it this way, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways don't look like ours. We want to analyze. We want things to all add up. But God's will often doesn't do that. So I want to talk to you a little bit about how specifically you do some discernment. First of all, let me tell you a couple things that discernment is not. Most of the time, discernment is not the whole plan. If you're sitting around waiting for God to lay out exactly what you want, He wants you to do, He's not going to do that. God rarely does that. Sometimes God gives you the end goal. He does that for Abraham in the Old Testament. He says to Abraham, I want you to leave your father and your mother's home, and I'm going to give you this land over here, the promised land. But that's the instruction for Abraham. He doesn't know how he's going to get there. And so the rest of the story is, is Abraham saying, okay, I know i got to get from here to there, but, but Abraham through the story has to be sort of like a sailor. If you've ever been sailing, you, you can't go in a straight line when you're sailing because the wind doesn't always let you do that. You've got to know where you're going. You've got to make course corrections along the way. And so sometimes God gives you something to do, but he doesn't give you all the steps so that you have to rely on him in the process. Other times, you don't have no idea where you're going. All you get is the next step. It's like driving my car in the middle of the night. It may be dark. I don't totally know what's ahead, but I know as far as my headlights are. And so if I go that far, you know what? I can see that much farther and that much farther. That seems to be the Joseph story, right? Joseph has no idea. Joseph in the whole story gets no promises from God that he's where he's supposed to be. He just has to remain faithful as he's a slave and then as he goes to jail because he gets into this thing with, with uh, the wife of a... Of a where he's accused of, of trying to seduce the wife of, of the person who was ruling over him. He goes to jail. He doesn't have any promises. He just keeps trying to be faithful to God in the next step. I wish God would come in with a nice clear voice and say, Jordan, do this. But I've never had that voice. Some have, by the way. Some Christians have. Some people in the Bible do. But most of the time, that's not the way. Think of the Acts church. I mean, here's, here's that church in Acts, and they're trying to figure out what to do with these people that are becoming Christians but aren't Jewish. They have all kinds of questions, all kinds of issues that they've never had to deal with before. They don't know. But what do they say in the letter? Let me read that phrase again. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. You almost get in the letter that they're not totally sure either. Did you catch that? Like they're, okay, seems good. Seems good to us, the Holy Spirit. Let's go with this. 
Like, they're debating, but they're not totally sure. It's not a feeling. Most of the biblical characters that I know that are led by God do not feel like doing what God wants them to do. If, if you think God, you're waiting for God to get you excited and happy about what he wants you to do, all the biblical evidence says that you, you're not, you'll be waiting a long time. It's not about how you feel. It's not about what you want. In the Bible, Paul really wants to go to Rome and then eventually to Spain, and he puts it in several of his letters. But we don't really think he actually ever got to do that. We make our plans, but God's plans are not our plans. It's not what others say either. Most of the time, there, there are a number of examples in the Bible where what people say around biblical characters are bad. The, the biggest example being Job. If you remember, Job goes through all this stuff. And he suffers and his friends really tell him to curse God. Or tell him that he must have done something bad to have warranted God's misfavor. But the whole point of Job is he shouldn't listen to his friends. That he should stay faithful and trust in God. So what is discernment then? Discernment is not, it's not the same. It happens a lot of different ways, but it it often comes in quiet, and it comes with an intuitive sense of knowing God's will. One of the things my dad says often when he tries when he makes big decisions or he counsels others is he says you have to know in your knower. That's not real exact language, but you know in your knower. You got to kind of know. It's not a feeling like you're excited about it, but you, you get this sense that yes, that's what it looks like. You can pray and ask for it. I have found in my own life that God speaks in quiet most often. One of the reasons why we don't discern God's will is a lot of us don't get quiet enough. God has no space to speak. We have to give God time. We have to quiet the voices in our own head. And that takes a little bit. Can't do that in five minutes a day. Got to have some dedicated quiet time. The Bible is important in this process too because number one, God will never ask you to do something that's contrary to his word. And number two, we have this whole book of God guiding other people. We understand some of the things that God cares about. We understand some of the ways God chooses to speak, some of the things that God chooses us to act. And so the Bible is important in discernment. And there is a role of community. You need good Christian friends that you can double check God's will. But you always do that carefully. Because sometimes God gives you something in your knower that doesn't show up in other people until later. Now why is this important? Because I think God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And I think if you're not doing what God wants you to do in the decisions that you make, even in your little decisions, you're never going to be happy, satisfied, or fulfilled. Maybe the best way to... Talk about discernment is to give you a couple stories. First of all, uh, I'm going to give one that's not mine and then a few from my own life. When, when Operation Christmas Child was started, I showed the video at the beginning of church. It was sort of accidental. Did you, I don't know if you caught that on the video. But Franklin Graham received a call from a friend of his over in England asking for boxes to send to Bosnia. He called him in July and Franklin Graham totally forgot about until that fall he got a call that said hey where are those boxes and Franklin Graham ah I better get some calls he he called a few friends at different pastors and different churches and what sort of accidentally happened was 
a bunch of churches got really excited about that and a ton more boxes poured in than they thought, was gonna, than they thought were going to come. And so they found out, hey, this is really going to go. And then when the people in England weren't going to continue the ministry, Samaritan's Purse, Franklin Graham, stepped up and said, no, this is important. We're, we're going to do this. And it's become this huge thing today. But that was God's will stumbled into. And sometimes in your life, God's will is stumbled into. It just sort of happens. In my own life, there's been a number of times where I've had to really discern. One of those times for me was going to seminary. Um, I had gone to work in a church and uh, had started using some of my own gifts and abilities there. I'd been brought on to do outreach ministries, reaching out into the community, and then also the youth ministry. But I was becoming more and more like a pastor there. I was starting to preach a little bit, and some of those gifts were being developed. I was, uh, started a small group for young adults. and So all of a sudden, a lot of people started singing me these gifts and started encouraging me to look into seminary and really doing full-time ministry for the rest of my life. Um, I also did not want to do a lot of youth overnighters anymore. I was getting tired of those. There are a lot of pastors that are recovering youth pastors. It just wears you out. Um, And so I started looking at seminaries, but it just wasn't financially working for us. We couldn't quite find the place. Went to a school in Ohio, and Mandy and I visited, and we liked it over there. We went to Pittsburgh Seminary, and neither of us liked it. We didn't like the seminary that much. We didn't like the setting. And so I thought maybe I would just start a class there and then eventually go to a seminary full-time. And then I got a check in August to start seminary. I got a letter that said if I wanted to start in September, a month later, that I would have a full scholarship. I went from no scholarship to full scholarship all at once. And uh, when God gives you, I don't know, $35,000, that one was obvious. (laughs) That was God's will. All right, I'll do that one. That one I I got real clear on that one, God. There was never a voice, never God spoke to me, but there was a letter from the seminary that really clearly said, you better do that. Um, Happened that I was in seminary and I got to come here And was here part-time in my seminary time. And then as I got closer to graduating, we started discussions about whether I might be able to come here full-time. And uh, we had some things going and some excitement. And um, financially, it wasn't there. We knew we were going to have to hit some savings for me to be here full-time. But but we were discerning whether maybe we wanted to try the experiment of me being here full-time. That was one of the hardest things I think I've ever had to discern. Because I liked it here. I was comfortable here. I liked the people here. I still like most of you. And uh, it was comfortable. It was easy. I have some of my friends I graduated with that are just getting jobs. It's very hard to get pastoral, pastoral jobs for first time call. But I didn't know in my knower if it was quite right. I didn't want to do it just because it was easy. And just because it was kind of a logical next step. And so my wife and I... And, And some friends of ours, we went on a process of really praying to God and asking about that. And um, it was one of those, okay, was the session want to do it? Okay. Is Presbyterian going to back it up? Okay. And so we kind of stepped, stepped. Were there any other jobs that I was really interested in? No. Okay, next step. And then eventually it just sort of happened. That was one where discerning God's will took a long time, and it it just kind of gradually unfolded. 
Probably the most powerful story of discernment from my own life was much more my mom's story than my own. Um, we, had, um, we had adopted a, a girl named Emma, my sister Emma, who has since passed away. And Emma was difficult. She had been, uh, uh, she had been really neglected as a child. And um, We got a call from a, a woman that said that there was a uh, little Down syndrome boy going to be born in another month up in New York. Uh, from a family that found out late that he had Down syndrome and, and did not want to keep him, but wanted him to go to a good Christian home. And so my sister and I and my dad were all like, yeah, let's do this. Let's do this. But my mom was not real sure. In fact, she was more than unsure. She said, no, we're not doing this. I'm not, I don't want another. She, at the time, I think she was 36. She said, I'm not starting over with a baby now. I'm just not doing that. Um, about six weeks before that, my, uh, uh, my parents had been in Shriners Hospital with my sister Emma, and they had, somebody over the loudspeaker had called for the next patient, and it was a little Amish boy named Gideon. And my parents thought, wow, Gideon, that's a great name. That is a really great name. What would be the middle name? And so my, my parents spent about 20 minutes coming up with this name, Gideon James. So this whole long conversation started possible about six weeks earlier. And uh, my parents went through all this and then uh, uh, just kind of forgot about that conversation. And then as, as we were starting to think about this baby, um, we were all really on my mom about doing this. Uh, you know, we really, and I guess, I don't remember this, but my mom said, I eventually just said to my mom, Mom, where is your faith? I must have been like 10. So if I challenge you in your faith, it started much earlier. Um, and so my, my mom was just adamant. She wasn't going to do that. She picked up a book by a lady named Elizabeth Elliot, and she saw this sentence on the phrase. First thing she saw said, take Gideon. The whole sentence was, take Gideon, for example. That's what it was. It had nothing to do with, like, take Gideon, for example, as whatever I was talking about before. But she said, take Gideon. And she instantly remembered six weeks before that she had gotten the name of this child God had given her and my dad the name of the child before they even had the child. And it was this crystallizing moment of, we're supposed to take Gideon. I was just thinking about this as a Down syndrome boy. God already gave us the name of this child. And so we have Gideon, and still to this day, he's been in church here. You see him around every once in a while. Sometimes God gives his will like that. That was the clearest case I've, I've been around. What's important is not how you receive God's will, how you understand God's will. What's important is your heart attitude, because it can come all kinds of places. But what's important is that you as a Christian be ready, that every, day, every week we say the Lord's Prayer. We're going to do it at the end of the sermon today. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus in the garden says, not my will, but yours be done. As Christians, if we can get to that kind of heart attitude, then I think God will take some responsibility in helping you discern. God doesn't want you just flailing around in the dark. God wants you to do the plans and purposes that he has for you. And so if you can just say, Lord, your will be done. If that can be the attitude of your heart that I really believe, God will take some responsibility in coming to you and guiding you. But you got to have that heart attitude. And when he tells you and you don't like it, You've got to keep that heart attitude. 
And when you don't know what all the steps are, but you've got to do this next one, you've got to have the faith to take that step. I think that's true of churches too. What does it mean that God has a plan and a purpose for our church at Westminster? Because when we discern, we don't just discern in our own lives. We've got to know in our knower as a group, as a church, as a body, what God's will is next. That takes a lot of work. Is your heart attitude, thy will be done. Let's join together to close the sermon in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.